0: And as a related thing, are we wrong in conflating anti let me sorry, let me not have to retake this because there's a fucking ambulance.
1: Our critics are gonna need an ambulance when they hear this. Nah, they're gonna be they're yeah. gonna be just dis-
0: they're gonna be annihilated. Someone call like an ambulance like- but not for me. <laughs> Hello, dear listeners, it's BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hocheley. It's the end of June 2022, which means that it's been a year since our book, The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, has come out. And so we're taking this opportunity here to address the reviews that the book has received over the past year, uh, the criticisms, uh, and seek to engage with them productively and respond to them so it's the three of us of course and three co-authors and co-hosts hello george and hello phil
2: hi hi alex hi alex okay more more to the you know like where it really took me back to actually was um our trip in brazil where we um in uh, late well early 2020 before the world went into lockdown and at the ila Bella. The island, did I pronounce it to your satisfaction, no, that's Alex? that's fine, yeah, yeah, The island off the coast of Sao Paulo, where we, did I pronounce it to your satisfaction, Alex?
0: This is fine, just, yes.
2: <laughs> where we uh, finalised the book. And, um, you know, it was kind of very, uh, looking back, I We were joking about, you know, whether kind of COVID would become the politics of fear for our times. I still didn't think it would be. I thought like we were too kind of, I thought, the you know, we were too uh, canny, I suppose, as a collective. Um, humanity was too canny to be kind of taken in, given that we had been uh, trained for all of this nonsense by all the Hollywood kind, of crappy Hollywood Armageddon style TV shows and movies that we wouldn't fall for it in real life. But anyway so anyway that's what i think of when i think of the book and mm. so it's interesting to be at the other end of that process of writing and completing the book um and also to have so many uh, critical responses um and some of them have you know well in fact all of them with um real kind of uh with genuine um insight and effort so it's it's also quite humbling as well
1: yeah i mean we we didn't know how good we had it drinking Kashasha on the, on the beach and just uh, traveling freely around the world in <laughs> Indeed, early right? 2020. No, like I mean, take also, it away another, from us. I know we could, we're not allowed to have nice things, but the um, uh, one thing that, yeah, just another thing to, to reflect on was the, um, the launch event, which was in this time, time last year and was extremely fun. One of the, you know, hadn't had gatherings of that size for, for a while. And, you know, thanks to everyone who came out, that and even more thanks if you bought a book at that uh, event even if you already had one and some people even asked for
0: them signed so they they have uh yeah golden hearts if they did that um so obviously a lot has happened in the past um you know two years well now over two years since we kind of finished writing the book so this is not just an opportunity to apply to criticisms but also to reflect on what's been in the book what's changed and whether you know our analysis should be adapted in some way to uh to all the water that's flown under the bridge of 2020 and 2021 and 2022 so far uh, and a lot of things obviously have happened so um to get started and just set set up what these reviews are uh there's 11 of them that we've which are dedicated reviews there's a couple of other things we're not going to discuss where there's uses of our our work, but, um, these are all kind of dedicated reviews and I'm going to join up all the, uh, this into kind of general themes rather than a go review by review. Um, that might be a little bit tedious to listen to. So we've not done that, but, uh, in going through the themes, we'll make concrete reference to the reviews in question and who the author is and who, what the outlet is. Um, so hopefully you can follow this along. Um, apologies if it does get a bit confused, we're going to try to keep this, uh, kind of on the straight and narrow and make it uh, comprehensible for listeners. Um, The other thing I should say is that all the reviews, perhaps bar one, would be described as positive reviews. Um, So they're very enthusiastic at times about various different elements, um, but pretty much all of them will have some sort of critical angle on an element which was missing, uh, taking us to task for maybe a methodological point about a general political point or specific um, questions where the reviewer might see the world from a different lens, and um, so anyway, uh, this is uh, we're going to refer to these as as we go through. So let's get cracking. So the first theme that has been brought up in the reviews is whether we have overstated the case about the end of history. Are we still in the end of history? And uh, an associated question is. Uh, whether neoliberalism or technocracy fight another day that we're premature in announcing its death. Okay, so let's take this uh, first theme. What do you guys think?
2: I I mean, it's one that I'm confident we got right. We called it right, I think. Um, And that's before, you know, the war in Ukraine and also um, before the lockdown and everything that lockdown kind of accelerated. I think, though, it's important, you know, when we say, you know, neoliberalism, When I say it's kind of over, it's not to say that there aren't, you know, that it's not going to have a long afterlife in terms of the way in which it's embedded um, in people's careers, in people's biographies and in institutions. Um, The point is rather that its authority as a organizing principle for state and society is shattered and that it can't really be used as a way to recohere. Um, politics in the aftermath of everything that's happened in the last few years. So I would say I mean you know like I'm sure there'll be rearguard actions and I'm sure you know there might be there'll be plenty of policies that will very clearly be neoliberal in different ways but I think it's essentially in in the sense that it has a a coherence a political and ideological coherence that gives it um, allows you know kind of state elites and political leaders to formulate policy around it um and to kind of roll it out extensively that time is over and i think you know i'm confident about that and it seems to me very difficult to resist in light of um, in light of what's happening in the world at the moment
1: yeah i think this just to go back to this point specifically about the end of the end of history obviously you know the title of the book so it's a pretty important question (laughs) did we get this right i think it comes through you know in at least or in probably strongly in a couple of the reviews the one in american affairs by Park googled which i think is really not not a really good interview uh, a review and not to, so much to just dis- disagree with overall and then also probably in sam chris's review in first things so first things first um the i think the the argument i i think maybe we could have made more of this you know the double negative is the end of the end of history so there isn't. I don't think we're committed to saying that there's anything particularly positive, particularly in the absence of you know organized working class politics. There's not a new define a new definition of the the current period necessarily. It's just that the older end of history period that is losing its coherence and that's losing its kind of. Um, it's kind of control over some of these these main questions because i think sam chris's review is probably um sort of one of the one of the conclusions might be that there's still a lot of boring stuff around and it's like well yeah i mean maybe there's something to that it's not like the the end of the end of history was the beginning straightforwardly of something new there's going to be you know this period where Things are are, are reforming. I, I didn't want to I'm I'm t- I'm almost gonna get, use a, use the word interregnum in a sentence, but I, I think I well, just about avoided yeah, it.
0: We're we're all trying to avoid it. Yeah. Um I think Sam Chris's point is that he, you know, that he's not convinced and doesn't think we are convinced either. Um Potentially a bit unfair. I think we are convinced, and I agree with Phil that we've been vindicated by it, uh, if not only by events, but by the fact that so many other people are saying this is the end of the end of history now, um, rather belatedly, right? Because we've been saying it since twenty seventeen. Yeah, indeed, the man himself, and, right, Francisco Fukuyama, exactly. said
2: it. Yes, yeah, said it after us, right? So,
0: yeah, uh, and uh, sometimes without attribution, indeed, uh, making that point. But so I, I think I don't think that's uh, entirely fair and i think perhaps sam is reading this from the perspective of britain which i from my understanding uh very much feels uh pretty dull at the moment but the the, the point is i no, think no, that these are concrete no, is... well i mean george you've made this point as well um but but in any case I, let me just to finish my point that um this is in any case a a concrete matter right it's, it's something which is material and isn't just about some free-floating idea of history but uh which means that in different places in different times it can have different complexions and um you know period societies do go through periods of quiescence for 10 years and then erupt suddenly again so um i don't think the criteria for the end of the end of history needs to be that everything is crazy all the time everywhere um, so, I mean, this yeah.
1: point around around kind of Britain being boring, I mean, I think the we probably differ a little bit on the emphases or the, the precise type of like date of the end of the end of history. But if you want to date it, or at least in my view, like you can date it quite precisely 24th of June uh, 2016, like the day after the, the Brexit referendum. That was a... Dis- I mean... Yeah, it kind of blew everything up. It was a, I mean, I think in Sam's review, Brexit delivered a no, but no unified yes. But that no was sufficient, at least in my parochial, kind of Anglo-like narrowness, to to say, yeah, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a new political period. So I think... Um, yeah, and the, know, end that, of the end of history is a be... no
0: rather than a yes. I mean, to put it... Like, no. ...to basically. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just on the question of neoliberalism, um, because we've had criticisms about this uh, from other corners, not just in these reviews. So I thought I would take the opportunity also to address... I, I, one, I think you need to define neoliberalism reasonably narrowly, not to just mean simply uh, the absence of a working class movement or the um, marketization of society or the real subsumption, um, to put it in Marxian terms, Um, because those things might still continue despite the neoliberalism passing. I mean, it's a form of state transformation. and I think that is obviously coming to an end. One thing that is really striking, just to underline the point that Phil made about uh, the intellectual authority of neoliberalism, a friend of mine sent me a video from Brazil Um, which was a big kind of news discussion kind of uh, thing, like a question time, if you're familiar with that, whatever. One of the guests, a leading economist, is there discussing like, look, the end of history is real. I mean, it's funny, it's like pure ideology, but he's like, the end of history is real. We just have to accept things like that. It's a fact that democracy is better. It is a fact in the economy that certain things like openness and free trade and less regulation is a fact of how the economy has to work, that there is no, effectively, he didn't say there is no alternative, but it was just said so blatantly in a way that nowadays you couldn't say that without being exposed to immediate ridicule. You know, if someone comes in selling you um, deregulation, uh, open trade, globalization, openness, etc., you know, it it's seen as even even in the pages of the FT or the Economist, it's now done with a no. But remember, guys, like this stuff is actually like pretty good. We we maybe went too far, but you know, it's done uh, shiny. I don't even
2: get that though. I mean, you know, the FT accepts, right? I mean, reporting on Davos earlier this year, it seems that they everyone accepts that the kind of the uh, the Indian summer of globalization and neoliberalism is over and that whatever it you know without clarity about what comes next but that there will be kind of different relationships between the market and the state and between the state and society and market and society so i think i mean that's the and it's not you know i mean i think for instance like neoliberalism and education will continue i mean i think this was a point made by Branko milanovic that you see the extension of certain kinds of models, of um, kind of using technology to kind of create supposed new efficiencies and to reshape the sector, and the neoliberals are excited about the possibilities for telemedicine and for um and for uh, education, and they think this can dramatically kind of alter the way in dramatically expand and improve the way in which certain kinds of services are delivered, and maybe those two sectors will see kind of you know in this era they'll see the extension of neoliberalism. But as an organizing principle for society in the aftermath of like furlough schemes on the scale that we saw them in the aftermath of all the kind of um, the acknowledgement of key workers during the pandemic, in the aftermath of the enormous kind of um, legacy of all the supply chain shocks, attempts to deal with inflation, increased defense spending and what have you, very difficult to maintain um, the notion of um, kind of constructing competition as the aim, you know, that and privatization as the aims of uh, state policy. That time is past. So
1: I mean, yeah, I mean to a certain extent, it depends what you mean by neoliberalism, near, but we've we've talked about we've talked about this before. And I think we I think, you know, to return to the to the to the main like question, are we still in the end of history? No, I don't think so. Now there's a competition between, you know, between different between different ideas, at least. And um, yeah, thanks to Brexit. Just wanted to drop that in there.
0: Um, yeah, and, and obviously inflation is another part of this, I mean, which used to reflect class struggle, but I think it's, it's uh, the, the it, this was something pointed out by one of the reviewers, which was it actually Anton Jaeger, which contributing to a round table in New Perspectives. All this is in the show notes anyway, if you want to uh, refer to these. Um, but that inflation is, back. Um, but it's driven by the vagaries of a leaderless and anarchic world economy. So an engine of history might be back, but it's not class struggle. And I think this is, this is a theme which yeah. we'll come back to discuss. Um, but it certainly puts a does seem to put a, a, a final stop on uh, on neo, the neoliberal period. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I think if you take kind of unipolarity and um, the great moderation, kind of price stability as two of the defining features of that era, the fact that they're gone, you know, it makes it very difficult to talk. If you have to account for those significant changes, right? Yeah. So,
0: so uh, speaking of neoliberalism, uh, several reviewers urge us to look back to the beginnings of neoliberalism um, as a potentially more key moment. So, effectively, they charge us with ignoring the 1970s. In our focus on the 1990s that the real end of history perhaps was uh, at some point in the late 1970s a more important end of history than actually the 1989 through to the 90s transition was guys
1: so i mean i guess to a certain extent there is like there are processes and there are events and the you know events are uh, usually the culmination of processes rather than rather than sort of um putting them into place so there is always a kind of you know a, a background there and i think yeah t- two of the two of the interview uh, t- two, sorry two of the reviews in in particular the one in platypus by goahany and then one by richard Zach were in that new perspectives um roundtable do do kind of draw out these points and make these you know this kind of like attempt to i guess shift earlier than than 89 um i mean i think the the it's symbolic though I mean, this is the defeat of uh, the the alternative to to liberal capitalism, and I think that that kind of you can say it's already wrapping up, and you are kind of getting to the conclusion. But I think there is something about that date that is very significant and symbolic and important. That it is the culmination of all of those defeats in the in the eighties of organized labor, and you know. You've got walls that come down. You've got like you've got things that happen around this point in time, which are very, which symbolise the 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 end of this of this of this possibility. Even if the re, like the things that could have actually brought it into to reality have have already been disappeared, that's the end of it. And so I think there
2: is a. I would stick by the by, by the date that we that we have in the book of nineteen eighty nine. I think we reckon. I mean, we reckon with the seventies, and as much as we're talking about the era of neoliberalism which has passed right and neoliberalism emerged from the 1970s so the idea that you you know that to talk about to sensibly talk about the contemporary era you would want to foreground the 1970s i mean i don't think that's contrary to what we do we you know if you frame kind of one era around from the end of the second world war to the the end of the 60s and a new era from the mid 70s late 70s to the end, the end of um, the end of the end of history that seems to me kind of you know um, you know that seems to me like a, a logical and legitimate way to periodize. Yeah. So there are other ways to do it but I think I mean if the 70s are so important I don't think we discount them precisely in fact that we reckon with how important they are because we see them as the beginning of the period that is receding into the past now so I think kind of trying to, trying to do as Hani and Sack would do trying to kind of um, foreground, the 1970s, seems to me to evade the issue, which is trying to understand what's happening at the moment.
0: So, I mean, it's important, I think, to note that um, both of these, the two reviews, which mainly bring this up, um, do so from different perspectives and with different intentions. Um, So Richard Sakwa, um, who listeners will know we had recently on talking about Russia and Ukraine, um, is that he he points to how epochal uh you know kind of 1979 even was. You know, you have Deng's uh reforms, you have the Iranian revolution, and um you have the the forward march of labor halted, which is actually an article written by um by Hobbsbaum in 1978. Um, you know, they have the new whole new liberal revolution, the beginning of US presence in the Gulf, et cetera, et cetera. These are all kind of concrete things. One thing that we do in a sort of Hegelian register is say is is make a in, in, in engaging with Fukuyama specifically, because again, we, the book is in a sense a response to Fukuyamaism, um, is to say that it's more than just the end of neoliberalism as a period which you can date from the mid-70s until today, um, that there's a more fundamental sense of the end of history, which is what George was already saying in terms of a, a, a much kind of almost metaphysical sense um of history which uh, is more fundamental than just a type of regime like neoliberalism so there's that so that and that's that's sort of Sakwa's point the point made in platypus um is slightly different and what that one is getting at is an idea that we are effectively to put it in, in, in most explicit political terms that we are too soft on the post-war period and like effectively make a golden age out of it by saying, you know, there was politics then and afterwards there weren't. Um, and the review actually dedicates a lot of time to basically saying actually the post-war period of Fordism, Keynesianism was pretty terrible. It wasn't able to speak to people's aspirations. And so we should, the kind of end of history had already happened. You know, there are, the end of history was already in the 1950s, for example. In response to that, and I'll let the other guys come in to, to comment on that, is that we do reference that. I mean, we reference the fact that Daniel Bell was writing the end of ideology in the early 50s. So we're conscious of the fact that there have been many ends of history. This is, um, this is clear, and it's a, it's a platypus preoccupation, of course, these various endings. I don't think it's completely, you know, incorrect. But ultimately, if you follow that line of thinking, you're always going back to like 1918 when it all went wrong.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Alex, there's the infinite regress. And I don't think we're um, I mean, I think uh, I don't think we're in acknowledging the fact that you had large that society was organized around mass politics and mass social organizations, principally organized labor. You know, they were integrated into all sorts of kind of corporatist arrangements, no doubt about it. Um, we're not turning the post-war era into a glory, into a golden age with all the kind of all that nonsense about le, le Tron Glorieuse and all of that. We don't engage in that. But we do recognize the difference um, between the character of that era and the fact that it was founded in mass participation in mass society in as contrary to the neoliberal era, which involved precisely breaking up um, those social organizations and involve disaggregating society, um, as well as kind of cutting the connections between representative politics and um, uh, the governed, those the rulers and the ruled. So I don't you know, I don't think um, I think the claim by Hani is forced. Um, and I think, you know, the, with the question of the, um, I mean, I find Richard's kind of response is, I mean, he makes an interesting point. He says, you know, kind of Fukuyama um, got in the way of what would have been a more productive and useful debate at the end of the Cold War that might have helped to integrate Eastern Europe and Russia. And that would have helped to you know kind of avoided the situation that we're in now, and that it became this kind of sterile kind of quasi metaphysical debate that was um sent in the wrong direction. And I think I mean that problem with that is I think that it mis overstates the um you know, it's kind of overstates uh, the power of debate, essentially, you know the reason that things went in the um the reason that things went in the direction they did wasn't because we all ended up talking about the wrong thing, but because there were deeper kind of forces at work. Um so anyway, I mean that would be my that would be my response to I guess like even even
1: even even reviews that you know you don't necessarily agree with with all of them uh, I mean are still I think extremely thought provoking. And these two being a good good example. One thing it did make me think was, you know, maybe we weren't really that we weren't bold enough in because in the book we say nineteen forty five to nineteen eighty nine Cold War and then 1989 to 1916 (coughs) up to 2016, uh, end of history. But really what we should have done is say 1789 to 1989, history. So this is the period where you actually have history, and then 1989 to, to 2016, end of history, 2016 onwards, end of end of history. I mean, that's like... Maybe that's the sort of um, argument we should have made because then you can say, well, yeah, I mean, the, the 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 last kind of embodiment or the the form of whatever history was in the 70s to 89, that was you know, that was of a certain sort, but it was really 1989 where you saw these bigger historical dynamics and and uh, forces and engines all kind of um, crashed and and run out of steam. Or
0: mixing my yeah. force there a little bit. No, but the, the, and the question of engine is important. I want to bring in a review here, which um, in fact doesn't make any very serious critical points, but it's an excellent review in, in terms of digesting our our work. And that's uh, one of these contributions to the New Perspectives Roundtable by Daniel Zamora, who um, is, uh, I think, perhaps a colleague of Anton Jaeger's in, in Belgium. And, and in any case, they're working on a book together. Um, and his uh, argument is about history without engines and really emphasizes the point about Mass politics about people organized, um, masses organized into organizations, parties, unions, church groups, etc., um, and conflict in the workplace. And the the point he he accepts that you know history might be coming back, or certainly that we're at the end of the end of history, but that the old engine isn't there. You know, so for example, the Great Resignation uh, in the U.S. Uh, expresses a new relationship to work. So workers are revolting, but as individuals rather than as a class. So th- this ties back into the reason of why 1989 and why not and not se- uh, 1979, um, which is that I, if you look at a lot of um, the data on trade union membership and so on, uh, voting turnout, party membership, all those kinds of things—the the the indices of the void—you know—to use Peter Mayer's term—1989 um, is pretty significant as a as a marker uh, in in that kind of transition. And so, if the engine of history is mass politics, in some sense, then um, I think it's absolutely correct to say to date it to 1989 and not 1979. Maybe the rot had begun, but had wasn't fully expressed by then. So you're
1: sort of saying the engine had started <clears throat> needing an MOT by, in sort of 79, and then it, you know, eventually failed and was kaput by uh, hit by 89, and it was spectacularly um, kind of burst into flames in <clears throat> front of the car, <laughs> something like, like an American, yeah. American film. Okay.
0: Okay, so um, to move on to another theme, um, which is uh, which takes a different angle, and that is uh, obviously something that we have to discuss in the shadow of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and this is the question of the relationship of war to history, history with a capital H. Um, we have not just that, but the return of patriotism. There's talk of. You know conscription nowadays uh, in Germany, um, and some reviewers suggest that we may ignore the importance of war. That that in fact history was often um, kind of instantiated or carried through by wars and not necessarily class struggle.
2: Yeah, so this is um, I think this is actually a kind of a powerful line of, um, if not of critique exactly, but of um, engagement. I think. Um, And I suppose, but I mean, it would also not be, you know, I mean, um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, uh, how shall I say, I mean, you know, the famous characterization, Hannah Arendt, and, uh, and she probably got it from Lenin and from Luxembourg, was that the last two centuries were the centuries of wars and revolution. And that wars and revolutions were intimately intertwined right from the Napoleonic period right through up until um, up until the end of the Cold War, that the stakes for governments in the era of mass politics when they had to kind of justify Um, war aims to enormous, you know, to um, growing constituencies, including working class, kind of urban working class constituencies, that this meant that the character of government was necessarily kind of um, expanded. And the fact that war was bound up with the construction of welfare states, the expansion of the franchise and all of that. So certainly I think the... um, you know i certainly i think the two the two things um but rather than war being something separate it's something that's intertwined with um with the uh, class struggle as a dynamic of history
0: mm. and something that we we forget nowadays i think because i think there's a and i'm, I'm trying to think yeah. this through but i think it's a sort of american like u.s american bias because uh there's a you know the talk of okay if there's an engagement with History with a capital H. Yeah. It is to see it in terms of class struggle Stop in terms of that. revolution. Saying <laughs> saying well, uh, his, you know, to associate with revolution with class struggle exclusively, and to see war as a sort of exogenous thing of of the conflict between great powers, which is somehow unrelated. And in fact, I'm not sure as that's Phil true. says, I mean, Vietnam th- th-
2: is you know a very conscious part Vietnam, of American public life. That's and memory.
0: true, and that was the last time, of course, you had conscription for for good reason. Um, but you know, the US didn't experience the first and second world war in the same way that uh, you know your Europeans certainly did, or even Asians uh, and a lot of yeah. Africans did. So you know it was a distant affair. So Adam, and it, yeah, the last Adam time the US Hughes. experienced it was in was really the. the I, I, I suppose the, the 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 civil war, which itself was a revolutionary war. So, um, yeah. so Adam Tooze,
2: I mean, it was in Adam Tooze's, um response on his Substack newsletter called Chart Book, where he made this point about um, recounting his you know recounting his participation at a book launch event that we had in New York, where Alex attended as well. He made the point about the um, the war in Ukraine. As uh, I attended evidence, as well,
0: yeah. I mean, it was. <laughs> as, <laughs> I was just there. I was there in the audience.
2: Yeah. <laughs> on our behalf, you attended. That's what I meant to say. Um, that the uh, you know the war in Ukraine is evidence of this, and I think I mean that's absolutely right. So, and I think the kind of the return of significant geopolitical rivalries is obviously another indication of the end of the end of history, because the end of history is predicated on pacifism and not pacifism in the sense of um in the sense of you know because it was a time of tremendous kind of military um the use of constant kind of warfare in the periphery but at least peace subdued kind of rivalries between the great powers so i don't think though i mean you know adam in his piece he suggests the possibility of um you know patriotism there's talk of conscription and this kind of thing i'm not so convinced by that that seems to me to be the um you know, that doesn't seem to me to be the consequence of this. And just, it's very much a, a point def-
0: corrected I think that's something that Anton mentions, not, my, not Adam.
2: Uh, my uh, apology. Um, so, um, but the, you know, the participation in this kind of, in the conflict is very vicarious. It's the waving of the Ukrainian flag, the running up of the Ukrainian flag, Um, But I mean, sure, if you, you know, and there's a willing, you know, kind of lots of um, tough talk over the costs that governments say they're willing to bear to support Ukraine against Russia. I'm sure if you actually tried to cash in those promises in terms of, say, well, we're going to have conscription now to fend off kind of um, to fend off uh, Russian menace, I'm sure people would very quickly reevaluate their commitment um, to the conflict. And indeed, I think even with inflation and energy costs continuing to rise across the rest of the year, people will continue to reevaluate their willingness to bear the costs of um, a geopolitical showdown with Russia.
0: Yeah and I, I mean it, it's interesting that um Adam Tooze makes the point that um if the honor of rekindling history of returning us to the 19th century belongs to anyone it's not to like the uh Putin who's still a bunga figure you know he's doing a war of choice which is very end of history style like the invasion of Iraq um but that that honor might belong to the Ukrainians so yeah I'm I'm not entirely convinced by that um there might also be an element of eurocentrism in there like somehow war back to the what what's wrong with saying Eurocentrism? Like it it is it is like too focused on Europe and overstating Europe's importance. It, it, it oh
2: stopped. my God! What the war between Russia and Ukraine is actually quite important. I'm sorry no, that it, it happens No, it to is be but, taking but, place but, in the continent of Europe. Yes,
0: Alex. but but there's been invasions in other places, and then that didn't like count where? as the return where? of history. Huh? Where where? Uh, I don't know. There were there were civil yeah, war in, exactly. in Ceylon. You know there was. Uh, yeah, Ceylon. What, what what fucking era are we Sri living Lanka, in Sri Lanka. Couldn't it didn't come to mind immediately? But Jesus.
2: Obviously, well, with this neo-colonial attitude, I'm not surprised.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's because I was looking up Ceylon tea earlier, up. and it was front of mind, asshole. <laughs>
2: Look, obviously, civil war in Sri Lanka isn't going to have isn't going to be as significant to world politics as war as Russia invading a neighboring country, right?
0: Okay, but there is the sight on European soil, I guess, of 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 masses actually fighting and actually having to, uh, you know, involve themselves in um, in in military struggle, um, which. I think it at least signals to that thing of, of mass involvement in politics, which again is the point about conscription. Again, I'm not entirely sure I buy it, but it would be interesting if states, if major states tried to introduce some form of a draft or conscription, uh, that would radically change the relationship between state and citizen in which, to you know, it's been a situation where the state has not asked anything of citizens yeah. and suddenly it starts doing something, doing so, that is a, a major break. That is potentially yeah, a history gonna... restarting.
2: It's not going to happen, though. I mean, I think, sorry, George, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say it's conscription,
1: really, the state asking something of citizens. I think it's more sort of telling
0: or demanding. (laughs) Sure.
2: No, but it is. It's based on, you know, know, like you do something for us, um, for the collective good. I mean, I think though there is an element of this with lockdown, right? I mean, despite the fact that it was kind of mandated public passivity, it nonetheless formally kind of implicated and involved everybody in a collective project yeah, yeah. um for the first time and i think that is a significant um I, know, don't, that is... I don't
1: agree it's not a collective project or project whatever it's a disaggregated atomized one and i mean just on this point about i mean i think this is one of the questions i'm not, that, den- um... I'm, not
2: I'm not denying okay, the politics on. of lockdown right or saying that it was something that was enjoyable or that it was something which was kind of a a grand shared collective experience. But I'm saying that nonetheless, the fact they had, you know, in mandating lockdown, they had no choice but to draw on people's consent in a single kind of national political decision in a way that was new. Right. It yeah, wasn't just participating in an election and implicated everyone to indeed, it wasn't just an election between two technocratic parties. So it was a different kind of political consent. Um it wasn't and I think the you know the fact that people felt that they took part in a shared collective experience for good or for ill, I think that also is part of the disintegration of the kind of more individuated anatomized period of neoliberalism as well. Mm.
1: We'll see. We'll see. I mean I I think it's a negative sort of consent and in some ways a negative conscription. You're conscripted to yeah, do I that, didn't really really say. I didn't
2: but, say but, I didn't say it wasn't.
1: No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm, I was probably um <clears throat> caricaturing what you were you were saying. That's quite possible. Um but I just to return to the to Adam Tooze's um review, and again another, you know, very thoughtful and and kind of difficult to to kind of address briefly review and along with, with Anton's, I think kind of raised the question of like so ukraine specifically you know what if history is restarted not by the engine of class struggle but by war but i don't think this is again in the book exactly what we're trying to say we're not trying to say history was restarted by brexit by trump i mean it's not quite it's just that that period of <laughs> that period of the end was 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 uh ended so that double negative again i i don't think well i mean we may i, I don't think even the most like kind of pass, uh, passionate defender of Brexit, would say it was the restarting of, of history. I mean, I think it's though the end of a, of a, of a period where that, that's not possible at all. Anyway.
0: So as to the big questions of history, because this is the next theme that we have to address and it's perhaps the most um, theoretical one that is addressed to us. And I'm going to try to do it justice in trying to resume the different points made. Um, it's basically whether sh- history should be understood in a metaphysical or Hegelian sense, or whether the question is much more material. So the implication of this is that we might uh, in our book fail to properly historicize the end of history by looking at its material underpinnings. um, So that it's this kind of general idea about uh, the end of class struggle, the end of an alternative, et cetera, et cetera. um, But we don't look kind of concretely at the material underpinnings of this. So consequently, the, the question would be, is the return of history, should there be one, uh, about a new horizon of freedom in a grand sense, or just about the presence or absence of real social relations that instituted the end of history, i.e. if the end of history was neoliberalism, globalization, and so on, if those are now gone, then that means that potentially that you know history is back. Um, so it, it, it's a kind of a, a, a broader philosophical argument. Um, guys, do you want to deal with that?
2: I mean I suppose I I'm not sure I think the you know the accusation of the metaphysical is a tad unfair um because what we're trying to do is we're using the concepts that the very influential concept um and I mean this is uh, mainly in response to the SACWA review um, I think, though, to a lesser extent also to Anton Jaeger's review. But the, you know, we were trying to, Fukuyama, for, for better or for worse, was one, if not the most influential and defining way to talk about a particular period of world politics in the aftermath of the Cold War. Um, and so I think the, you know, to, uh, it's not if we're trying to kind of characterize what something is changing in, then by of necessity, we kind of hooked ourselves on the on that that was already there. Um, and I don't think that was, so I don't think it's, um, you know, I don't think that's uh, kind of a willful retreat into metaphysics and nor do I think Fukuyama really does that either, because he's talking in terms of a particular tradition of political theory, which is focused on institutions, on um, on meaning, And on basic kind of political actors, states, nations, um, conflict, internal conflict and conflict between different kind of organizing principles of social life. So, I mean, you know, it is I mean, those those discussions are not necessarily easy and it is also easy for them to become unmoored. But I don't think um, I mean, it's not something that we kind of um, that we kind of willed into existence ourselves but was a response to what was already there as an existing debate. And I think, you know, it was it was the right debate to be engaged with. Um, the Fukuyama kind of idea of the end of the Cold War, the reason it was influential, um, was because it was very evocative and powerful. It was a powerful and compelling account of reality.
1: I think um, the charge of Hegelianism, we, we kind of have to, to a certain extent to accept because, I mean, the title of the the podcast before we kind of transcended or sublated or, or or just moved beyond it, of course, was Alpha Bunga Bunga, taking that Alpha Hegelian Marxist term. I mean, there is a certain, like, I think probably starting point um, of, you know, capital, capital H history, or I don't think we talk enough, probably in the book about world spirit or about Geist and and really get into that kind of the dank, the dank Hegel. Um, but i mean there is certainly something there that we're not just talking about or at least in my understanding it's not just the kind of the <clears throat> i guess the the one fucking thing after another or the accumulation of events or or kind of political economy or whatever that that makes this um period but also something about the the fundamental political character um and that you know can be said in more or less <laughs> hegelian terms but i think we certainly you know there is a sense that you need to to have that that kind of um, the widest possible uh, co- context or scope um, to fully understand the, the the period and to historicize it correctly, or at least that's my yeah that's my sort of take.
0: I think that's right. One one place where we maybe were remiss, um, and it's something that I kind of. Um, have said on some other podcasts, which have been on some events. Um, and I realized, after, I said it soon after the book came out and realized, oh, shit, we should have actually put that in the book in a, in a more explicit sense. But it was like, I think the sort of five or six real components of what the end of history actually was. Um, So not just describing the Hegelian terms, but specifically to talk about globalization, globalism as an ideology, neoliberalism, post-politics, and capitalist realism, uh, those kind of five elements. And going through those, my argument's been that the four of those elements are are gone or dying. Um, The one that remains is perhaps capitalist realism. And that again, it it refers again to the question of consciousness, which brings us more onto the Hegelian uh, Marxist territory. So I think it's justified, but maybe were, we're remiss in not, uh, being explicit in nailing down what are the main features of the end of history.
1: I'm I'm not sure that we would have probably agreed <laughs> on that on on that list. I mean, that's there's some we don't want to to devolve into into too much auto critique either of what we could have put in the book or of what our our co-hosts are currently espousing, um, but I th- <laughs> but I think that-
0: well, look, it's either I, that I really or it's either that need- or listening to Phil going, "I was right always and will always be right."
2: Yeah, uh, come, come now. <laughs> what we need is an end of history in the podcast, right? So, like, there's no kind of internal antagonism.
0: Mm. Yeah, um, I mean,
1: I think I think actually, and this is this is why in the book we talked quite a bit about the cultural feel, and you know, Kurt Cobain got a kind of. Um, came in for for justified criticism i think any pixies fan will know who's just derivative anyway but the i think the, the the point of doing that was to kind of conjure up some of the not you don't want to say sort of pre-political but some of the the the, the affect or the the feeling the field if you will or the this idea that it's not just at that level of kind of neoliberalism and it's it is a kind of um um a world yeah, a, a world spirit, a, a, a feels of of this um, uh, lack of possibilities and foreclosure of, of options and um, a more or less forced consensus, which I think came through in culture as well as politics in that post-political period.
0: So I think it might also be useful to relay a little bit of what the content of the Sakwa critique is in in this regard, Um, because it comes from a different political perspective. And actually, this will be a nice way to move us on to the final two themes as well, which are more um, political criticisms, um, which to some some extent, it's difficult to respond to as criticisms of the book. It's a little bit of like, do you agree or disagree? But anyway, um, what Sakwa's argument is, uh, if you won't have time to actually read it, is that the, 19, the Fukuyama moment of 1989 actually was a moment of historical opportunity, which then got closed down um, and you got the sort of, uh, you know, neoliberal, you know, pensée unique uh, sort of thing going on there, um, when actually it could have been a good moment to reassess um, the whole, as he puts it, dialectical and historicist thinking that nurtures both Leninism and neoliberalism. So that instead of a mechanistic dialectical approach that generates historicist delusions, that the meaning and purpose of history cannot only be divined, but also controlled and directed through purpose of human action, uh, Sacco proposes a more dialogical approach. I mean, basically what this is arguing is that the whole effectively Jacobin tradition, which you can trace through Babeuf, Marx, Lenin, uh, and so on, um, that that is... Uh, misguided in some sense, and that it would have been a moment to, 1989 could have been a moment to reassess and to find a new form of uh, socialism, effectively, which was more human and emancipatory, um, and effectively charges us with effectively trying to repeat or revive the Jacobinism of, well, effectively the whole modern period, but certainly the period from the 1840s until the collapse of the Soviet Union.
2: It's, I mean, so it's, I mean, I read this as and Basically, it's, you know, kind of um, what Sacco says he would like in kind of opposition. First of all, I mean, you know, conflating neoliberalism and Jacobinism and Marxism as all kind of historicists seems to me to be, you know, kind of odd. Uh, well, let me just be, you know, not say odd. It just doesn't work, does it? I mean, they're so, they're not the same. They don't belong to the same thing. Um, And then kind of at once, he wants to kind of make the case for an alternative kind of more humanistic socialism threaded through Kautsky and Luxembourg and Gramsci, but at the same time wants to undercut Babeuf as if, you know, Kautsky and Luxembourg and Gramsci were not Marxists themselves, Mm. who are deeply kind of engaged in these, um, in all of the kind of Marxist Polemicizing with Lenin about the uh, circumstances of their times and what the how the working class should respond to the politics of the time. So, I mean, the way I read, you know, Richard's kind of uh, critique is he's the reason he's resistant to Fukuyama is because he's still kind of fighting a rearguard action for for um, Gorbachev. Um, yeah. That he thinks there was this kind of there was this great opportunity at the end of the Cold War that was missed by kind of um, American neoliberalism, steamrolling everything. But but there was nothing, you know, the way I read it um, is just different. I just don't think there was anything there. The great kind, you know, the Gorbachev kind of ideas of reform and world harmony and peace, it was the sigh of, a, of a, you know, of a state, a whole project and a whole state that was expiring. It was a death rattle. I mean, it wasn't. And- it wasn't an
0: alternative. And you might even say um, it's a nice idea, but it was somewhat impossible at that point. I mean, he recognizes that it was completely well, decrepit was, by that point. You know but I think I mean, the tell was... sorry, but just, just specifically, because I think the tell is when he talks about this could have been an opportunity to uh, somehow rejig or reformulate the relationship between uh, markets and the state. Or something like that between liberalism and the state yeah. and i think that that's telling because it's not a transcendence then of capitalism the socialism he's talking about yeah, but he's not but yeah but, but you know i
2: think he's happy he wouldn't he wouldn't contest that you know so i mean i don't think he, he would say that is kind of something that he's not interested in or is uh abandoned but i mean the other element of it is then that he says you know he would he wants something that combines a kind of um a huge you know the kind of emancipatory liberalism but also the burkean critique of socialism and this, and it's this kind of um, incredible, you know, just this confused melange. He wants, you know, kind of the Goldilocks porridge. I,
0: I think a lot, lot of people are too, favorable who? to that, though, you know, this kind of idea of a democratic and market socialism, you know, something that. That's but it's not even science.
2: that. Like, it's like he wants Birkinism as well as humanistic socialism, as well as emancipatory yes. liberalism. He, you know, like Goldilocks that wants the porridge neither too hot nor too cold. You know, think it doesn't ever. I,
1: I think your metaphor doesn't work. Instead of, like, who doesn't want Goldilocks porridge? Or goldilocks Goldilocks's porridge i mean it sounds more like pick and mix than than the the right temperature of porridge but anyway that's probably a second what i mean
2: point. is gloopy because i think well, by is... saying porridge i mean gloopy and also like you know something which is um very you know and a temperature unhealthy. no the point of the fable is like that goldilocks is never satisfied Right, so she's looking for something which is cannot be delivered as precisely as she wants it, and this is what I'm saying about Richard's thing. He wants all of these things kind of mixed together in this gloop and wants it exactly insists on it being it is cooked exactly the right temperature and consistency that is satisfying to him. But the historical process doesn't deliver things exactly to your um, you know uh, requirements.
1: Mm. You should um, you should pick this up with him over over breakfast sometime the uh you can eat whatever you (laughs) eat
0: my cold linen is
1: forage (laughs) the the point that I was going to make is that I think there is an interesting like interesting challenge here that I think I definitely had assumed that the end of history period 1989 to 2016 was the product of a defeat right of an earlier defeat which then symbolically it all is all over in 89 and then it's like that's the that's where everyone's so like oh there's nothing to nothing to do with hist with all our time there's no history everything's you know labor's defeated and you know capitalism's got got no got no forward forward engine etc but i think this idea that that end of history period was in itself a defeat or that that was a missed opportunity um that there was something still up for grabs there it wasn't it was much more open than Retrospectively, I would, you know, I think we sort of assume it was in the book. I think that is an that is an interesting question. But um, yeah, I mean, not not one that can be can be easily answered.
0: Yeah. So to, to move on to the very the last two of the themes, and they are, as I said, kind of the more um political critiques. The first is uh should we be less modernist, um, to to sum it up very basically, Um, which is to say more critical of the modes of politics inherited from the period, let's say, from the 1840s until 1989, and more open to alternative modernities. Uh, And and a similar point is whether we should be more critical of the total domination and subsumption that modern capitalism represents, and therefore more open to forms of escape from it like presumably something like the family the nation community and so on um so you'll recognize already the sakwa in that but there's another one anyway guys take it away
1: yeah so i think the other review that that kind of potentially strikes this note is in is joseph keegan's in the um in the bellows and i think yeah there is there is definitely i mean i i guess it's a to a certain extent as you sort of said at the beginning um there is a um there is an extent to which you know this is this sort of a political position that we're, we're sort of staking out um more or less explicitly throughout the whole throughout the podcast and the, and the book and i think it is probably pretty unapologetically modernist in the sense of of kind of trying to draw that that you know politics from that period forward and i guess you know all these i previously mentioned all these ten dollar hegelian words about moving beyond beyond things um so kind of you know not moving back to some of the more potentially you know attractive but more defensive positions like family or or community perhaps and instead looking at what the possibilities to to take the logic of capitalism and, and move it beyond itself I think that's probably the sort of the starting point of the of the dynamic of of the you know political position we're probably probably coming from so yeah i mean i don't want to be too sort of unsympathetic to it because i think it's a legitimate kind of it's something we should respond to and it's it's quite easy to just say sorry political disagreement you don't like it um these are our you know these are our politics if you don't like them you know get lost sort of thing um because i think that's not you know not potentially too productive but I do think there is a, you know, maybe that it's possible to make this criticism because there isn't really uh, a full-blooded or full-throated defense of modernism in political context. There's, you know, there's speculative th- throws into the future of different things. But who is who is willing to take the historical process by the neck, so to speak, and, yeah. and move forward to a, to a planned different sort of more democratic, et cetera, et cetera, society? There doesn't really seem to be any collective forces trying to do that.
0: Yeah, and I, I, to, to be specific, I guess it's to what the criticisms are are uh, that Joseph Keegan makes in the Bellows. Um, one is that our, our, he finds that our definition of politics is weirdly too broad, it's too much about struggle and whatever. Um, and that, you know, basically it, it that sounds <laughs> i'm 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 being unfair but but to kind of paraphrase you know that just sounds exhausting and actually if we listen to the real content the actual content of populist demands we would find um reactions against the aggressive political encroachment upon spheres of human life long accepted as standing outside the purview of state and bureaucratic power so again here there's a i suppose a more conservative note of um resistance, uh, of defense of uh, the life world um, against the system, defense of p- perhaps, you know, things like um, stability, the cross-generational transmission of community, um, instead of seeing politics as an instrument for constant warring, struggle, and so on. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I, he, I think, even says, uh, kind of sarcastically or, you know, critically, that we're wrong for setting up politics as, in any way, a pursuit of justice. Um, Which I think then is telling. I mean, for him, he the politics is is as an idea something that maybe should be criticized itself, um, but that we should look at ways of defending the very nature of human being against capitalist domination, and that populism is, you know, presumably able to do this.
1: Yeah, I mean, the politics is. I mean, he's correct. The politics is not a, a method to to achieve justice. That's that's uh, that's bad but no it is that's bad bourgeois liberalism depends on your politics if you're a bourgeois liberal then it is your
2: politics then
1: more for you then you know get rules and if that's the the limit of your kind of political horizon then you know fair enough but Uh, as we discussed with
0: yes Um, yeah
1: i mean but i think the i i I guess i disagree on the characterization of populism and i I, because i think that the what the at least in my reading all of the successful populist movements have appealed to a directly political urge specifically around popular sovereignty and this is like and this is a very narrowly political demand for more control i mean this is the at the core of everything and it's expressed in different contexts perhaps um but that's what lies at the center of it and that's why populism's had been able to have an appeal because it is an it is a directly or sorry maybe indirectly but at, at, at its very root there is a, a demand for control which is based in popular sovereignty which is a, a, a political um, demand.
2: I'm also left a bit cold by these um, very generic kind of sweeping you know talking in terms of kind of um, the alienating aspects of modern life and modernity in general and then recasting that as kind of you know capitalist totalitarianism um destroying all of our kind of uh fellow feeling and um innate kind of humanity i'm always left slightly uh i'm always kind of unmoved by those very uh, it seems to me overheated and romantic accounts I have of no um, soul <laughs> of um of uh criticisms of kind of capitalist modernity. So I can't really, you know, I can't really, uh, I can't really sympathize. And I tend to agree with George as well about, um, you know, that the populist kind of response isn't, I mean, it's a yearning. It's certainly a yearning, I think, for greater connectivity and for a more kind of, uh, you know, kind of a more um, socialized society, I suppose, at one level. Um, But at the same time, it is, I think, also, for all of its limits, um, and I will talk about those limits a bit, you know, a bit more. Um, it is still political in the sense that there is kind of an insistence on control. There are questions of state power and the relationship to collective power and collective authority. All are embedded in those populist demands.
1: Um, so, I mean, this I think is important that the, and it was something which you know in in the in the book there was an equation equation of um, populism and, and anti politics, and actually. I think maybe it's, it is more complicated than that. Or you can put it maybe in different terms that populism is, is, is not, it's not sufficiently political. Like it grasps the, the essential starting point, but instead of, instead of putting forward a kind of a system of political representation and instead of centering agency, it then devolves things in, in, a, in a less political way or, or without kind of giving the fully political kind of uh, solution of centering of of like making it a question of agency so i mean i think that's i mean that's obviously the the framework that we used in the in the book around kind of populism being anti-political but i think maybe there are some some ways we could have expanded on that and discussed that a bit more and brought in some of these these ideas i'm not expressing particularly clearly now but were very clear in my head when i started this point (laughs)
0: Well, this is actually very much to the point of the final critical theme, and it's probably the most engaged political criticism, and that is the notion that we might be too critical of left populism. We're too harsh on it, um, and also, relatedly, whether we're wrong in conflating anti-politics and populism, that these are actually uh, very different things. Too kind,
2: too kind to left populism, not critical enough of left populism, like, I'm just not. Okay, like,
0: well, refer to the, Let's like, talk us through the, the main so review. With so
2: response, with response to um, to Nick Kersey's uh, review, um, he takes us to task for this, um, for not seeing the, you know, well, I mean, he makes a few points, I suppose. But um, he sees our contemporary kind of populism as a genetic uh, descendant of the populism of the late 19th, early 20th century in the US, which was... Um, you know, kind of a genuine mass movement with um, among agri- the agricultural poor, the rural poor, as well as connections with um, working class kind of, um, working class citizens in the US as well. And he sees it as, um, you know, as having a kind of a storied, a storied tradition of resistance and popular heroism. And I think all of that's true, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, you're talking about a very different kind of, um, a very different kind of, of social and political movement um, at the end of the end of history compared to the populism that emerged at the end of the 19th century in the U.S. And I would agree that the first one is, you know, vastly more impressive, both in terms of its radicalism and its popular roots. um, And it's sheer kind of, you know, um, kind of plebeian energy but it's still a lesson the fact that it kind of disintegrated before the first world war and that it failed to kind of make any kind of um you know any real headway um in terms of breaking up corporate power or imprinting itself on the state and that that was left effectively to the technocrat more technocratic minded progressives um and uh, the woodrow you know woodrow wilson and his kind of um followers and Theodore Roosevelt and all that, that kind of, um, you know, that retinue of leaders. Anyway, so I don't, you know, I don't accept the connection that uh, Nick wants to make in terms of populism.
0: So, yeah, I, I agree with those points, Phil. There's populism 1.0 and there's populism 2.0, which is a feature of the end of history and they're different things. Um, And I think we can, you know, maybe a different term should be used, but we are where we are with that. Um, There's another point that, a connected point that Nick Kearse makes, which um, I'm going to try to spell out here um, so that we can then discuss it, which is that effectively populism, the left populism of something like the you know bernie sanders movement was not anti-political and that populism the in populism 1.0 of which bernie is a representative supposedly um is uh, the the answer to anti Pop, uh, to anti-politics. Uh, left populism is a solution to anti-politics, not a representative of anti-politics. Um, and that, as it, following through that argument, that effectively left populism, like something like the Bernie Sanders movement, was uh, much more bottom-up, mass, and a popular phenomenon, and not middle class as uh, we criticize it uh, for being, um, and that, that this was the strength of its populism, uh, and that, that populism is a response to anti-political tendencies like woke scolding, identity politics, and and so on. Um, there's, a, there's a second one which we'll come on to in a second, but uh, why don't we address that first?
2: It's just not true. I mean, everyone knows that clip of the DSA meeting, where they're all complaining about being triggered by clapping and by loud noises and by people talking, refusing to listen to them, questioning them. You know I mean? It was like a caricature of a, of a event that was designed to kind of disintegrate. And that was, it was famous, you know, as a DSA meeting. So I just don't, the idea that it's, um, you know, that there is a, uh, a clear, dis- a clear difference between these two things is just not true. I think the point is whatever kind of, um, kind of, you know, demotic, plebeian energy the Sanders movement had, it was all subverted and uh, taken over by the woke scolds and by the PMC activist crowd.
0: I, I think we can't deny so, that plebeian energy though, and the fact that it had a large working class support, even if the activist base was um, more middle class. I think that I want to bring in just one point from a different review, because I think it might be a good point to discuss it, which is from the platypus one, which is to say... um, that the whole pmc discussion ultimately obscures the real problem say ah the activists are all pmc so what the real problem is the inability of those involved uh, involved in politics like us to pose new answers to the question of why the working class tends towards inactivity on the political stage so basically get over yourself for being middle class and get on with well, maybe the politics. old answers are still
2: you know, i mean maybe the old answers are still the right ones you know, I mean, the reason I think there is good, you know, if you want to account for outcomes, if you want to account, explain the phenomena that we see before us, it's very difficult to do that without accounting for the behavior of the PMC, right? Um, so the fact that, it, you know, I mean, the fact that it doesn't fit the kind of the classical Um, sociological or Marxist accounts of what a class is doesn't change the fact that it has, and this is a response to the Platypus Review, doesn't change the fact that it has tremendous kind of influence, particularly because of the quiescence of organized labor and um, working class passivity. So I don't, you know, like I'm kind of puzzled by the, I'm puzzled by the demand essentially. Um and the idea that coming up with um you know that uh, there's that it's working class passivity is um some kind of profound mystery. Um I think also it's part of the explanation, right? Like to be extremely crude about it,
1: you have the capitalist class, they exploit the workers, the let's call them the PMG, the professional managerial group. It's a stratum because not a group. Uh, PMS then. I mean that has other mm. connotations, but PMS, the professional managerial stratum, um, and they are they manage the workers. They are specifically there to um, what what's the yeah to tend the working class towards inactivity on the political stage. How by dividing, by delegitimizing dissent. But like literally, I, I mean. You can quibble. Over I, don't, the, I don't think the, the PMC like, I don't, I don't, their class. I mean, this, this Are you making the argument their, that
0: the PMC is the reason that the working class hasn't risen up? Because I don't think. I think that's. A it's step a reason. Far too far. No, it's a reason. I, I it's think it's a reason. Their
1: political function for capital. Like, is I mean, I'm. I mean, I said. I said at the beginning to be very crude, which means I should be able to get away with crude generalizations. That's not
0: just a free. <laughs> it's not a free pass. Yeah. I can just say whatever it bullshit I want, class. and you're gonna listen.
1: <laughs> it's called um it's called speaking simply and truth to power and all that sort of thing but the no i mean uh, i'm i'm quite serious about that there is on behalf of capital they do play a role political role in managing dissent managers do dividing the working class yeah and and i think that's you know you can call them what you want but let's call them pms (laughs) i mean i need to stop saying pmc and i don't think pms is better i think that's like maybe worse but like that, that intermediate group. And I think this is part, you know, you can sort of map this more or less closely onto contemporary kind of left or not, but I think this is what this, this group in society or this stratum is yeah, that what their political function is.
0: So I, 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 I'm avoiding the temptation to get involved in more PMC discourse, which I'm utterly sick of um, moving on to uh, uh, another criticism. I mean, I, I want to give a shout out actually to uh, one of the reviews, which was, um, very enthusiastic about our book and um, highlighted a lot of important uh, points, which was kind of nice to hear. This was one by uh, Dan Taylor in Marx and Philosophy Review of Books. Um, and th- there's not, we haven't really discussed it because it's mainly um, positive in, in terms of relaying the argument. Um, the one thing that it... Uh, kind of points out more critically is that we didn't have enough to say about environmentalism or, or BLM, both of which energize some recent working class participation uh, in politics and that we don't do full justice to the multifaceted nature and agonistic challenge of these movements. Um, I think we've made our points clear on, on uh, those issues in the past. But
1: first, first, but most importantly, we don't want, we don't want praise. That's not helpful. We don't want people saying that, Oh, this is a good, book a good contribution no we only want criticism we only want negative things we can get you know we can um, our teeth into, slap, yeah. we, no we can we can uh slap our own backs or the three of us we can like pat ourselves on the back in some in some circle and, and certainly outside. some of us do
0: <clears throat>
1: um some of us were, were right all along um it turns out but <clears throat> no i think there's there's i mean maybe this is this is something which we underestimated to a certain extent environmentalism i mean this could be it's in there i think um but i i I guess it seems like what we 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 could have predicted but but it would have been a very um it would have been a very kind of lightning insight to say well environmentalism is going to take the covid model and we're going to have climate lockdowns and this is going to be one struggle that is quite conceivable that we could have in the next few years we didn't didn't say that in the book we didn't draw out those implications of kind of mapping onto some of the other models of politics the environmental kind of um um not lens but the environmental kind of um surface so yeah i mean we could have we could have maybe explored some of the contradictions in environmentalism a little bit more i think you know we probably wouldn't have come to particularly positive conclusions or at least i don't think i would have done but Certainly to, to acknowledge how important it could end up being, I think, is something which we probably could have, well, could have and spent We, a bit we, more we discussed
0: on. this in, in the latest Reading Club, which I don't know when this is going to come out. So it might already be out or it will be coming out soon by the time you hear this. I think it'll probably already be out. Um, so if you want to refer to kind of our criticisms of that, uh, that's where you will find it. Um, Just to return to the Kiersey one, because it is the most sustained, it's the longest review and it's the most sustained um, political criticisms that are made, Um, I think generally sympathetic, but uh, takes us to task for certain things. So two points. One, that we were wrong uh, in criticizing fully automated luxury communism, the idea popularized by by, uh, Aaron Bastani. which he finds is sort of, a, you know, effectively a shiny example of Marxian left populism, um, that fully fully automated luxury communism. uh, Those ideas are Promethean pro-technology, but are not tech solutionist. It's a serious proposal to take state power and implement non-reformist reforms. It's a utopian vision that can rally a winning coalition, which is to say it's popular. Um, And so therefore, we were wrong to criticize it as being in any way depoliticized or tech solutionist um we'll deal with that one and there's a final point on nationalism which we're going to return to uh just after um which will be the final point we discuss
2: so i was i mean you know i i i would agree with nick up to the point that i was quite struck when when the kind of narrative around fully automated luxury communism got going um and it was going before aaron wrote his book um you know it was I was struck by the techno-optimist strain because it seemed to me up until that point, at least, um, the left had been characterized by its um, doom-mongering kind of Malthusian pessimism, um, deeply kind of, you know, trapped in the green mire. And so that you had this kind of optimistic idea of sweeping, you know, the possibilities for sweeping transformation of human life and society through technological emancipation, it was noteworthy, you know, um, at least in its kind of meme form. But when it was actually kind of articulated or they tried to articulate it kind of theoretically and conceptually, it became much less impressive. Um, And I think, I mean, there's no getting away from the fact, you know, that most of Aaron's book is about, you know, gene editing and um, asteroid mining and uh, rewilding and all of this stuff. And the actual part about the political kind of and social transformation that is needed to meaningfully unleash and tap those kinds of technologies is the thinnest part of the book. And obviously it was all about Corbyn, essentially. Right. So given where we are now like it's very difficult not to see the falk period as the kind of ideological froth the kind of um you know turbo corbinism of the corbin period it was part of the kind of the optimistic wave of that moment Um, but i don't think it had much more to it than that and sure enough like that promethean strain seems to have petered out and the left has collapsed back into its um into a kind of dire and pessimistic outlook um, which is entirely kind of bound up with um, apocalyptic kind of uh, green and eco pessimism. So I can't, I just don't, I can't accept Nick's characterization of Falk. It seems to me a mischaracterization and a misreading of what it expressed when it came out.
1: So I mean, I was on the, uh, I was reading this on the bus on on the way home. And it just, it struck me for the first time, I'm, you know, reading Nick's review and actually, you know, some of the things that he, that he sort of posed about the way we'd approach things. It, it did strike me for the first time that like fully, au- the fully automated bit, if you take it very literally, fully automated luxury communism, the fully automated bit, you don't want it fully automated. You still want to work. You still want to engage in like productive laboring processes. And it was kind of ironic that I thought this as I was on my way home from, from my job. And I was, you know, thinking that you love and want be, to engage in. Well, yeah, totally. But no, I was thinking like, if you had to pick any sort of society, you know, not to engage in too much utopianism and this is, you know, but you wouldn't want it fully automated. I mean, you'd want, you'd want the, you know, you want the uh, the free association of producers and you'd want to yeah, get on with some know. interesting work sort of thing. But I'm anyway, not sure about I just, it.
2: I think I'd be happy to lie on a beach and drink beer all day. I you just
1: get bored. I mean, you do that on the hol- on your holiday. And then I'd have
2: an app, Yeah. And then I wouldn't have you, app,
1: that, wouldn't you just like, just imagine your alarm goes off and it's time to go to work and you're like, yes, I'm engaging in the free association. I with, take, with I mean, fellows. I take,
2: I take the point, you know, obviously, but also like, I think um, there is something to be said for, um, for, uh, for. Automating as much as possible is yeah, well, and, so. and, maybe and well, and I think that the the, the, the
0: the problem in, with Aaron's book is that it's too enthusiastic about universal basic income, uh, precisely in this regard, and it means giving. T- taking away any leverage that workers may still uh, still have and make us wards of the state. Um, final point and uh, spoiler alert for what I'm gonna say in, in about a two minutes time, <laughs> but at least a mea culpa on my part, I don't know about the other guys, but anyway, uh, Nicholas Kiersey takes us to task for being soft on nationalism, um, that uh, we are um, critical of the left's of aversion to the nation um, and argue that the left must accept both types of desires. And here uh, Nicholas quotes directly from our book. Um, So uh, radical desires for sovereign democracy and conservative desires for belonging. Uh, He continues, I'll just lay this all out and we can then address it. Uh, The nation is effectively a constructed entity like any other so the fact that there's no european polity okay so what um you know the british polity is also fake um and that the um, belonging to the nation has always been a trick the bourgeoisie pulls to wed the working class of the nation and therefore to capitalism uh it, the upshot of this is that our take in terms of supposedly embracing the nation is anti-Marxist. Marxism seeks to do away with all forms of capitalist metaphysics, and uh, we're kind of soft on it, which ultimately means that this breeds a new conservative cynicism about the possibilities of left politics today.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, again, I suppose I would have to respond. I mean, the first thing I'd say, I guess, you know, famously, the Marxist project was, um, as the proletariat must constitute itself, the nation. So it was a very precise precise kind of sequence in terms of what the role of the industrial working class is with respect to the nation. Um, And I think, again, I mean, I think uh, the problem here is that, um, you know, Nick uh, takes to be constructed to be equivalent to fake, and that's not quite the same thing. Um, so, you know, our dismissal of the European polity um, isn't because it's um, because the British kind of polity is somehow, you know, less imagined than the European polity, but that there's no opportunity for a functioning European polity to emerge. If there was, you know, then we'd be happy to talk about it. But our analysis of the situation is that it's not going to happen. The other element, I mean, it's that it's the point is rather that the form that anti-democracy takes is hostility to the nation, right? So, I mean, the way in which the um, hatred of democracy is packaged in a cosmopolitan or anti-national form, and there's no getting away from that because it's not just a political kind of critique, but also a cultural one. You're small-minded, you're parochial, you're egotistical, um, you're local, you're restrained, you know, and you don't have the kind of the broad-minded um Uh, generous warm kind of outlook you're too focused on your own kind of narrow material concerns and so if there's no getting away from the fact that if you want to defend democratic majoritarianism you have to be willing to accept the fact the bourgeoisie doesn't talk about the nation to calm the workers right the bourgeoisie kind of retreated into davos and the bourgeoisie kind of um used globalization and cosmopolitan ideals as the political um, vehicles over the, for its uh, rule over the last 40 years. So
0: that would well, be... not 40 um, years, because be my... it, j- j- just a, a little criticism on that. I mean, I think the leading factions of the bourgeoisie in, in the rich countries, rather than everywhere in the world, and it's not for the last 40 years, because Thatcher actually leaned very heavily on patriotism to support a rule. So it's really uh, something for the last 20, 30 years.
2: Yeah. And it's very, well, I mean, you know, look, I'm talking kind of in broad terms, right? But I mean, even that was limited. Um, So, I mean, that was very, you know, Thatcher's kind of campaign when they raised the Union jack over poor, when the Marines raised the Union jack over Port Stanley in the Falklands, you know, like it was a small war in a kind of Antarctic, you know, sub-Antarctic colony, as Perry Anderson put it. So there were heavy performative elements to that conflict. And very quickly, you know, once the market, once the neoliberalism is kind of um, unleashed, the Union Jack isn't anymore a symbol of national belonging, but just the Kichi kind of touristy brand. It becomes Cool Britannia under, um, under Tony Blair. You don't anymore have any military victory parades. Um, because there is no kind of nation around which to do it, and war is done on not on behalf of the nation, but on behalf of um, global humanitarianism. So the last military victory parade in the UK was the Gulf War in the early nineties, right? Even all the wars that Blair fought, there was no kind of um idea that it was based on a sense of um, you know, a kind of a national a national project in the way in which Thatcher rallied the nation to defend the Falklands from the Argentinians. So you know, I mean, I you know, I'm talking in broad terms, right? But I don't think there's any getting away from the fact that the bourgeoisie doesn't use, you know, in the last, if you want to talk in those terms, in the last forty years, it's not the nation through which the bourgeoisie has cemented its rule.
1: I think, I think that's well well put, Phil. But I, I guess, I wanted to hear more from Alex on on his mère Culpa um yeah tell us more tell us more why you're why your um well so i you, I, I agree with some yes. of the
0: thrust of nicholas's critique in i mean in the general points um you know the idea of belonging to the nation whatever yeah that's not something that as marxist you would necessarily um hold to but what i what i do agree with him is that we maybe could have been more careful with some of our phrasing on this. So very specifically, uh, this idea of conservative desires for belonging and, and somehow validating that, I think um, is is wrong. Or rather that I don't think we would want to give that a national form, that in some, in some sense, you know, uh, a socialist movement would give a sense of belonging and meaning, which is not provided by, you know, some static idea of the nation. Um, so... I think in that regard, we're correct. And the other thing, just probably more generally, is that when we talk about the nation, I think it's right that along the lines of what Phil said, it's as a response to the anti-nationalism of you know, the leading factions, the bourgeoisie in rich countries, um, which is a means of uh, neutering democracy. That doesn't mean it'll carry on forever, incidentally, and some of the points that we addressed earlier... Um, sort of say this that you know there might be a return of patriotism the return of war conscription and so on um it's not impossible to imagine the kind of recharging of nationalism um, in the core countries um it's undeniable that is a factor of a fact of life in russia for example um so you know i think we have to be careful when we say you know yes the working class needs to constitute itself as the nation but it doesn't mean that we want to defend uh, the nation as a kind of fixed and solid, entity as a cultural entity it's just I, I at least my perspective would be that it is the place from which you have to work you have to re-endown national politics with meaning and with struggle um, and not try to s- escape from it to a kind of cosmopolitan placeless realm or a, a, you know retreat into small local politics or whatever um, which doesn't mean yeah. an endorse of nationalism so
1: well I mean, ironic to say that whilst we're working if this podcast is work Whilst we're two, in two different countries and recording this, so we—it's
2: internationalist, George, and it definitely is work. This is definitely, unfortunately, not automated. Um, <laughs> but
1: it's it's good work. It's not that uh, automated, like luxury f- f- life. F-
0: funnily enough, Nicholas Kirsi's podcast is called "Fully Automated Podcasts." So. <laughs> oh yeah,
2: that's true.
1: Oh I d- yeah, I didn't realize that. But yeah. but that's I, wrong because his podcast is not fully automated. It has <laughs> g- hosting guests. You should if take it, it up automated, with him.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I you <laughs> know, I mean, conservative. I don't. Perhaps the phrasing was unfortunate, but I mean, I don't. You know, the fact that people want um, kind of uh, have a hunger for greater socialization doesn't seem to me to be um, you know, if you want call it belonging, you know, that doesn't seem to me to be something to um, you know, kind of shy away from. Mm-hmm. Um, And it can be turned to different ends. I mean, obviously, the point of uh, a socialist kind of a genuine kind of socialist politics is not to provide belonging. That's not its purpose. Um, But nonetheless, you know, I think the fact that people want these things needs to be um, considered in any kind of meaningful emancipatory politics.
0: I agree. It's just that it doesn't need to take the form of the nation specifically. But maybe we should return to this as a separate episode, um, because I think there's a lot of stuff to untangle here specifically, you know, when we talk about returning to the national politics, what does that actually mean? So anyway, we'll we'll come back to that. But um, we're going to round this out here. Um, We've discussed plenty of the reviews, plenty of the different themes. I hope we've done the reviews themselves justice, as we hope the reviews themselves do uh, our book justice. But let us know what you thought. Uh, If we've missed any reviews, also shout us out. Um, and if this encourages you to write your own review of the book, that would be fantastic. Or, you know, why not get yourself a copy of the German edition, uh, if that's for you, or the forthcoming Italian edition, which should be out at the end of the year. Anyway, that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.
1: No, the, we The reviews did us way more justice than we did the reviews. I think and it's that's true. Pretty, you, should,
2: you should say that.
1: That's pretty, that's pretty clear.